Hello, and welcome to this special Lupus Forum live webinar. I'm Ed Vital, I'm Chair of the Lupus Forum, and I'm an Honorary Consultant Rheumatologist at the University of Leeds. In this webinar, we're going to be discussing a case from clinical practice on lupus nephritis and some of the key issues it raises around the management and treatment, optimising the care of our patients with the, the newest treatments that are available. And before we start, just a few housekeeping notes for your information. All the attendees here are on mute for the duration of the webinar, but that doesn't mean we don't want to hear your questions. If you type your questions in the Q&A box, we'll try to discuss as many of those as possible later in the broadcast. And also, if you're having any technical difficulties, if you use the chat box, a member of our background team will do all they can to assist you. So I'm delighted again to be joined by a fantastic group of specialists in the field of lupus nephritis, all of whom are members of our Lupus Forum Steering Committee. So we have Maria Dallera, who's a professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Rheumatology at the University of California in San Francisco. Hi, Maria. Uh, Liz Hi, it's great to be here. Liz Lightstone is a professor of renal medicine at the Faculty of Medicine and an honorary consultant physician at Imperial College London. Hi, Liz. Hi, everybody. And Brad Rovin is a professor of nephrology and medical director at the Ohio State University Clinical Research Management Institute. Hi, Brad. Hello, everybody. Uh, and just before we get started, these are our disclosures. And also, I'd like to thank our sponsors for funding this webinar. So this is the second in a set of two webinars. Um, and the overall objectives of this webinar, this series was to improve understanding of the pathophysiology of lupus nephritis, the importance of early diagnosis, the challenges of management and treatment. In webinar one, we focused on the standard therapies. And in this, our second webinar, we're gonna focus on the new and emerging therapies and how clinical practice may evolve due to the, these advances. So we're gonna talk about the discussion and, and of role of therapies in the evolving therapeutic landscape, strategies for the use of steroids, challenges with access to newer medicines and some of the more holistic aspects of kidney health beyond immunosuppression. And as you see on the agenda here, just like in webinar one, we're gonna organize our discussion around a case which will be presented by Maria. And then I'll ask all our panel to discuss the main management issues that are arising from that case. So I'll now hand over to Maria to present our case. Great. Thank you so much, Ed. This is a patient from my practice, and I think will help us to discuss some very relevant topics around the treatment of lupus nephritis. This is a 29-year-old previously healthy woman who presents to clinic with a malar rash, which is quite scaly. And she also reports nocturia, puffy eyes, and swollen feet of about four weeks duration. She says that her medications only include ibuprofen for headaches, but it's only been for the previous six weeks. On exam, her blood pressure is 150 over 90. Her pulse is 80. She has mild periorbital swelling. She has a malar rash, and she has about two plus symmetric pedal edema. Notable laboratories, she has a normal white count, hemoglobin is nine, platelets of 150,000. Her sedimentation rate is elevated at 100. Her EGFR is 55. She has a positive ANA speckled pattern, positive anti-double-stranded DNA, 
She also has a positive lupus-endic coagulant. Her C3 is low at 48, and her urinalysis shows red cells and white cells, and her spot urine protein to creatinine ratio is 5.4. So at this point, I'm thinking she's got significant, she's probably going to have significant lupus depression. We only need immunosuppression and steroids already, but... As you said in the last webinar, you're going to do a biopsy anyway, even if you've already made that decision that she needs immunosuppression. Is that right? Okay, so just as, as Ed uh, previewed, the kidney biopsy is performed because we want to ensure that we have the right diagnosis and also understand the class of lupus nephritis. And her biopsy comes back as class four plus class five. Her activity index is 10 out of 24, and her chronicity index is 3 out of 12. And in the vast, in the report of, of um, the pathology, it states that there are no vascular abnormalities. So let me let me just make a comment, uh, you know, from a nephrology perspective. Um, the case is presented really did have a couple of little red herrings in it. Um, you know, as nephrologists, we worry about non-steroidal drugs a lot, and we can see uh, proteinuria with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, they can cause a podocytopathy, if you will. And, and so there, although I totally agree that in this setting, most likely this was going to be an immune complex GN lupus nephritis, um, it was important to understand that it was not something bland and not something just associated with the non-steroidal. Additionally, <clears throat> we know that this patient was uh, uh, antiphospholipid positive or lupus anticoagulant positive. So the possibility uh, of a thrombotic uh, glomerulopathy could have been there as well. And that would have been on top of everything else potentially. And we'd like to know about that ahead of time. So I think this was a high value biopsy. Yeah. And then could you tell us a little bit about the, oh, sorry, Liz, I'll let you. No, I was going to say, I agree with that completely. And also to highlight, that's really bad kidney function. She's 29 years old and she's got a GFR of 55. We've no idea how acute or chronic, hopeful, it's mostly acute, but she's already, she's already got chronic damage on her biopsy. So this is a girl in trouble, seriously in trouble. So that AI and CI are influencing your judgment about type of therapy you want to give or how you want to monitor is that right I think trying to save her nephrons is what's influencing my decisions yeah. and the rapidity with which you want to do that yeah but I do think as as Liz pointed out you know we would have been hopeful that she would have a chronicity very low like zero or one and that all of this uh, renal dysfunction was due to activity. But instead, she's already got a chronicity of three. So despite having only a few weeks of edema, she's had something bubbling along for likely a longer period of time that has not been you know, clinically evident to cause a diagnosis. Hmm. And actually, uh, when we jump into treatment, um, one question I had was, you know, so in real life, and what happened in this case is she presents to clinic, and this is a, you know, a new diagnosis of, of SLE and lupus nephritis, and it's going to take a little bit of time to get the kidney biopsy. 
I'm very fortunate that I work with wonderful nephrologists that will biopsy quickly, but it still takes time because the patient has to get on the schedule. You know, it can take it can take two two to three weeks sometimes. And so I'm I'm curious to hear from the panel what you're going to do in the meantime while you're waiting for that biopsy. I'd pulse her. I I mean I re, I would pulse with methylpred at least one dose, given that function and given the acuity of her presentation with no history I think I would be reluctant to just start MMF and I think what everybody should remember is is there a trial this girl could go into for her lupus nephritis because I think we should never forget that and if you've suddenly given her something else you may actually preclude her going into a trial if that's something she'd want to do but certainly I'd be pushing for a very urgent biopsy and I would pulse her given that she's already lost GFR. And pulses no. don't usually exclude you from most trial protocols. No, no that's the, but that's the point. Yeah. That would be absolutely yeah. fine. Yeah, uh, my pulse would always be five hundred milligrams, not a gram. But mine too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, so I would start hydroxychloroquine. There'd be no indication for not starting hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, which well, you no, know she's got skin disease as well. Yeah, of yeah. And so this next slide is pretty is very pertinent now because. Since we did the last webinar a week ago, the ULAR guidelines have just been published. And in the ULAR guidelines, they recommend that for a patient like this who has a, a, a class three, four, or five, the options, all well supported by the evidence, are MMF, urolupus cyclophosphamide, NIH dose cyclophosphamide, MMF and voclosporin, MMF and tacrolimus, MMF and bulimumab, cyclophosphamide and bulimumab, and they're all kind of equal. And then in some countries, like in the UK, where Liz and I worked, rituximab would be featuring prominently in there as well, which is mentioned in the guidelines, a slightly lower level of evidence. So this is really the, the big question now is, how, how do we choose? And uh, I, and I, think, open to everyone. <laughs> I think the interesting about the ULAR guidelines, and in some ways there's wonderful news, they've got this chart for non-renal lupus and for renal lupus. And actually there's far more that's allowed for renal lupus now than there is for, you know, in terms of green, everything that's got a good evidence base. The whole thing's got a good evidence base for all those options, except in fact for rituximab, which is yellow. Whereas for non-renal lupus, things that we've been using for years are yellow and, and, and amber. But I think it's made life more difficult, not so less I, difficult. I, I was on the I was on the, the authorship of that the guideline, and one of the comments I <laughs> made when we were writing it was, I mean, <laughs> of course, it's a, it's, it's a helpful guideline. One of the comments I made was, should we still be putting mycophenolate on its own up there as a first-line option when we've got more than one RCT saying that it's better to use a combination, MMF plus a CNI, MMF plus bulimumab. Should it really still be there on its own? I, you, you know, this is this is really, uh, and 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 I've evolved my thinking on this. When when all of the new options became available, you know, by the FDA approval and EMA approval, I uh, sort of wrote a not sort of I wrote <laughs> wrote a review article that suggested we start with mycophenolate, and then if things didn't 
go the way we had hoped, we would move on to something different. And I, I was trying to be uh, cost conscious, if you will, because of course the new therapies are are expensive. But as as I've thought and and seen evidence, um, I, I really do think we can do a little bit better early on in patients uh, with lupus nephritis. So I do actually favor uh, starting MMF plus something else. That's not to say that MMF by itself is wrong. Uh, and certainly it depends on the situation, the country, et cetera. And plenty of patients do fine with mycophenolate and glucocorticoid taper, et cetera. So I think the, the bigger question is, how do you identify those patients a priori uh, so you know what to do? And we're not there yet, of course. Yeah, I, I, that's the most important point, isn't it, Brad? You can look at two patients with a class four lupus nephritis and one will sniff a bit of MMF and prednisolone and they'll be better. And the other one will be, you'll be sitting there thinking, goodness, I wish I'd added something else or done something differently because we don't have the biomarkers to tell us who's going to respond to what. I think an interesting analogy that I've heard others make is to transplantation. We've been using triple therapy and transplantation and biologics for years. And partly driven by a desire to reduce steroids. And if you make that a center of what you do, which we have done as Imperial, actually we've been using a biologic and MMF since 2005, 2006, and, and they get pulse steroids. They don't get much in the way of oral steroids, but I think people are very anxious about the idea of too much immunosuppression, but lose sight of the fact that one, you know, if you went for full dose MMF, three grams MMF and high dose steroids, actually that's a pretty toxic combination. It's effective. It's effective. Um, but I think I'm I'm all about reducing steroids and preserving nephrons. And I think you do that best by going in guns blazing with what we know works triply. I want to I want to push you a little bit on that, Liz. I, I think for, for sure, I think we're all on the same page about reducing steroid. But I want to go beyond even reducing steroid. I think these new drugs bring additional benefits to the patient, uh, not only, uh, you know, minimizing steroid, but, you know, with the calcineurin inhibitors, the idea of preserving podocytes and maintaining podocyte structure, uh, and maybe with the B-cell therapies, preserving renal function and diminishing flare rate, which are all, you know, impinge on eventual eventual uh, kidney survival and kidney health in the long term. So I think there's many reasons now that we could go in with, as you said, guns blazing um, that, that make real sense to me. Um, I, I, I agree completely. I think what we don't know is should we be going in to get really rapid control approach? You know, because being nephrotic is horrible. We'll say with a CNI and then swap to belimumab and then perhaps try and withdraw your MMF. There's so many things we don't know about how yeah. best to manage these. But I agree with you. I think, you know, triple therapy is here to stay, really. And so that we should be adding in a third, if you can afford it. I don't think you're doing someone a disservice if you can't. But I think if we talk about an ideal world, yes, you would go in with a biologic early. So there's a couple of things from what you said there. One is that you, you were saying like there are some people who look quite bad, but actually do very well uh and vice versa so 
does if this case was milder would we be more inclined to say oh they don't need combination therapies or does it not work like that is it not i don't think it works like that unfortunately (laughs) i I mean my hubris i you know i always think of the patient i say oh you're gonna do fine and you know six months down the line we're looking there sort of holding our heads and the ones that i think are going to do terribly sometimes just turn a corner very rapidly i think it's it's a failure of our biomarkers brad will sort it all for us but it is a, currently <laughs> a failure of our biomarkers to to tell us who who's going to do really well and who's going to do really badly um <laughs> i'd prefer to overtreat a few people with all the safety net and preserve nephrons long-term, because these are young people. You want her to have a GFR of well over 60 in 30 years time, 40 years time. So Um, I think you really have to protect nephrons early on. And then the other thing I thought from what you said was that, so if they're very nephrotic, you might choose to use a CNI. And I I sort of always used to think, oh, if they're class five, it's probably going to be better to use CNI. And if they're, whereas if they're class four, you might want to go for a B cell added on, a biologic added on. But that's not necessarily exactly what the um, Aurora studies showed, is it? That Mm -hmm. that it was a a class five versus class four thing. No, I think I think the there's lots of problems uh, combining the, these big trials where they put in every lupus patient, uh, every every variety, really sort of biases against the drug, if you will, because I think class five has a a trajectory that's slower to resolve, um, and and it really uh, s- s- sort of the Aurora trial showed that in the one year period of time, it did not reach statistical significance uh, for vocalosporin, but the point estimate was favorable to vocalosporin. I think had we been given more time and and really more patients with pure class five, we would have seen resolution, but uh, uh, that, that doesn't necessarily I don't divide them up into class five and class three and four per se like that. I I think, and I don't actually like class three, four, and five. I like to look at the actual tissue and (laughs) see what's going on in the tissue, but I, 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 I'm a wannabe pathologist anyway. So. Yeah. So, so that, so, so it would be fair to say we don't really, there's a feeling that it's better to have, an, an add-on therapy, not just mycophenolate, but add-on something else, CNI or bilimumab or rituximab, but we don't have a good way of knowing which of those to use. We, we, we don't, but we have some ideas in whom things might be more effective or less effective from some of the secondary analyses of these two large trials that I think start to provide us with some ideas of what to do. I think the real answer is is what Liz suggested, which is maybe we start thinking a little bit outside the box. I don't like that phrase, but you know, should we combining be combining novel therapies to protect the parts of the kidney that we want that they offer? And I think that's really the next evolution of of management, maybe. And and you had a figure, didn't you, on the next slide here that was about how some of the, the different phases of treatment, what we might be thinking about. Yeah, so I'll comment on this. And then um, uh, I know Maria's seen this before. I think Liz has seen some iteration of this before. Uh, so if you all on the audience don't like this, I, I, I made this up. 
uh, to help <laughs> to help uh, guide my fellows on how to think about uh, things. Uh, so uh, obviously, just to go through it very, very quickly, lupus nephritis is diagnosed with a biopsy. Uh, Liz and I are nephrologists with a biopsy, and then uh, IV methylprednisolone, and then prednisone. And I'm even willing to get rid of the prednisone part, but I, I realize that most people would be uncomfortable with that. Uh, and then uh, if you were wanting to choose, if you were a belumumab fan, uh, we know that belumumab did uh, well in proliferative lupus nephritis, plus or minus class five. It really showed no efficacy, again, small numbers uh, in patients with pure class five. Um, the thing that belumumab did show, though, was that it was really much more effective in, in patients with a lower uh, proteinuria, less than three grams a day or three gram per gram by urine protein to creatinine ratio. Uh, Belumumab seemed to prevent flares, and we know that from the non-renal literature as well. And so if the patient is a high flare risk, i.e. they've had plenty of flares before, this might be a good drug to think about. And if patients have issues with adherence and you need to know that the medication is actually going in, a parenteral uh, medication is quite useful. On the other hand, uh, if you wanted to or favored a calcineurin inhibitor, uh, all classes of lupus nephritis seem to be uh, okay to use the drug with. We have a, a warning label uh, by the FDA of GFR that has to be uh, maintained. Uh, now nephrologists will use calcineurin inhibitors at much lower GFR. We just watch very carefully. Um, no more than moderate uh, IFTA, which is interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy, although at least some of the repeat biopsy work from voclosporin trial suggested no worsening of chronicity with up to 18 months of, of therapy. Uh, this was the this was the trial in which prednisone dose was was decreased very rapidly, and then uh, heavy proteinuria. Uh, and then, you know, sort of look at the patient after two to three months, and I'll, I'll defer to uh, Maria. I took these data from her article, which was the follow-up of the ALMS. Do you want to mention that a little bit, Maria, about how you think about early changes? Oh, sure. Sure, Brad. So when we reanalyze in a post-hoc way the, uh, the ALMS initial phase, we found that that a uh, resolution of hypocomplementemia in the first two months or a reduction in proteinuria by at least 25% was associated with a good response at six months. These are all kind of early indicators, right, Brad? I mean, this isn't telling us long-term kidney health, but it's no. trying to give us a sense of some early changes in kidney parameters that would reflect what happens at six months. So it's all pretty early, but I think that, so I think that there are data to support, right? Of course, Brad, what you're saying here, which is interesting. Well, I think, I think what we need to be thinking about, and, and I realize this, these data or these criteria were based on a post-hoc analysis and there's other criteria out there, but I think what we want to capture, and I think Liz will back me up on this, is that if things aren't working, uh, you you need to balance how much time you're going to let the patient be on something that may not work versus saying early on, I, I better switch because the longer the kidney is inflamed, the more 
probability that you'll have more sustained chronic damage. So I think, again, these this is going to require biomarkers to help us understand who to switch early. Um, but assuming assuming that works, uh, these these criteria are reasonable. Um, then we get down into this idea of <clears throat> the patient hopefully is improving and has continued improvement. What do you do then? And the, the, the new trials don't give us any guidance, although we do have two and a half to three years of, of therapy on the same drug. What do you do then? Liz, what do you do then? <laughs> no, okay, that's fine. So I, I don't have a massive disagreement with your starter for 10. I, I do think where belimumab has an enormous advantage in that it controls extra renal disease. And these, you know, Maria, your patient's anemic. She's got all sorts of stuff going on. She's got a rash. So there's, a, there's an added benefit of starting with belimumab. Uh, we could argue all day long about the, the over three grams or not, but belimumab appeared to preserve renal function, if not improve it, and fewer patients progressed and they didn't flare. So I think we do have problems. When is a when is a patient responding or not responding? And I find your the 25% really useful. I'd like to know from Brad if he's using CD163 in the urine as a biomarker <laughs> of response, because he's written a beautiful paper on it. And I yeah. think, you know, I, I don't know why we're not all using it. Um, it's a macrophage marker. You showed that it correlates beautifully with activity or not. And to me, that seems the way we need to go. At least we may still be getting scarring, but if we were stopping activity, I'd be happy to continue with what I was continuing. I use very little steroid and we've used rituximab for years and years and years. I think what we do longer term, I, I'm quite uncomfortable with using voxosporin or attack, we'd use taclimus long term. I, you know, I know there's Aurora 2, I know they've shown stability of the GFR, but with loss in the control group, but actually with the Limamab, you saw some improvement, and I think you should be seeing improvement in GFR. Uh, you know, a lot of these women present, say, with a creatinine of 80 micromoles per litre, but six months down the line, it's 60, and that's what they should have as a you know normal creatinine for a woman of childbearing age is 60 micromoles per litre, and that's what we should be uh, doing so we haven't mentioned the role of repeat biopsies which I, I, I think is really important and, and but when is not clear and then I think yes what you put on there is probably what the current advice is but I think we should be much more um, bold but we need studies I I've started taking people off their MMF and keeping them on their belimumab long term not least because I think it's pregnancy safe which will give somebody from GSK if they're watching a nervous breakdown <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but MMF is definitely not pregnancy safe and these are wh largely women of childbearing age and you're saying you're on MMF for years and years and years and so I think we could be get much bolder as time goes by about what is maintenance treatment. Yeah. And don't forget things like you mentioned adherence, Brad. The the biggest problem for me is adherence. And MMF and Voxforin is a lot of tablets. The uh, uh, once uh, a month IV or once a week subcut, not not a big ask. So uh, and when we talk about the safety we mentioned earlier, it's sort of that, yeah, there's a, there is toxicity associated with MMF. But when you look at trials like, say, the um, Luna trial of rituximab or the um, the phase two trial of abinutuzumab, the serious infection rate was double on placebo compared to on B-cell depletion. 
And I'm sure that's because they were probably getting boosts of steroid and immunosuppression because they weren't doing as well. I'm sure that's one reason, but it might just be the lupus activity gives you infections as well. Having no complement isn't good for you. It's good for you. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's really remarkable. It's something we've seen for years in the transplant population, of course, where we use many therapies combined. But I think it's really remarkable in our lupus patients with all of this stuff on board, the adverse event rate is actually not much higher. So I I think we've answered at least some of the questions very nicely about can we really combine therapies. And I, I totally agree with Liz. I would love to advocate, and we actually have a proposal in to use Volumumab and Voclosporin together to get their advantages and then sort of peel things away mm-hmm. and, and maybe have something much less toxic long-term to keep the actual disease, the lupus autoimmunity, under control. And I think that's where we need to be creative going and forward. this sounds like a good time to move on to the slide after this, which <laughs> is about the steroid dose, because of all the things we're trying, to, the drug that we really want to get rid of is this one, isn't it? So this is from KD Go, where they, they offered three different regimens of, of, of some higher and some lower. Uh, but Liz, you, you'd used less than any of these, is that right? Uh, yes, so we'd use none. So um, I think I, I can't remember if this is modified from the original that we put, that you put out, Brad, or this is this is the original. I bit someone's head off of what what stand, standard in the sort of response, what should be called standard dose and what should be called reduced dose. I think the Aurora trial showed very beautifully that you can use very little steroid. That's the best published data on a really low dose steroid regimen. So no one got more than a gram of methyl pred max total, and nobody got more than 25 milligrams of oral pred to start. And, and if you were under 45 kilos or 40 kilos, you've got 20 milligrams of pred to start. And they were down, I think, to 2.5 by 16 weeks. Yes. And that's extraordinary. That's that's never been done in a in a trial that completed. I think it's the right. But don't we know that the Aurora protocol is non-inferior to these protocols? Yes. Uh well, one of these is the non is is the um is yeah, that the one, the reduced dose scheme is the Aurora protocol, I think, if I'm right. Um, it, is. it is. It is. It is. So yeah. Uh, there, in my mind, there's no reason not to start with that and to really drive down the steroids. And what is considered standard dose, I would say, is much too high. You do not need, I think that's high dose. And I think the moderate dose should be the standard dose if people get very uncomfortable. But, mo- you know, steroid dosing is completely based on sort of slightly old very old studies that were not really trials and it's just what we've always done and every time someone's tried to reduce steroids it sort of got better so i i have to say i I have a very negative view of steroids um the rituxolute protocol we don't give any oral steroids whether that's right thing the ones i do and it's just going back to another reason for having a biopsy if i saw a lot of interstitial inflammation i definitely want them on steroids because i think that is probably we know tubular interstitial nephritis only really responds to steroids so 
those are the people I would want on, and they do right. very badly if they're not treated properly. Again, coming back to treating exactly yeah. what's on the tissue rather yeah, than... You, yeah. you have to look at the biopsy. And, and then we probably, just because we will, to allow some time for questions, we should probably go on the last slide, discussion slide we had, which is about this kind of long-term trajectory issue that was mentioned earlier. Do, uh, do you want to comment on, on, on that one, Brad or, or Maria? Or... Well, let, let, let me start. Just again, I, I know the audience, a lot of the folks in the audience are, are likely uh, to be rheumatologists. And this is something we think about in nephrology a lot. If you, you see the blue squares, that's us. All of us, as we age, we tend to lose nephrons. It's just inevitable, unfortunately. But we generally have enough preserved nephron mass to last our expected li lifetime. As soon as you have your for, first episode of re, really any kidney disease, but certainly an inflammatory disease like lupus nephritis, but put in anything else, ankylvasculitis, et cetera, you're going to have nephron loss. Uh, almost always, you if you were to re-biopsy afterwards, you see nephron dropout and some fibrosis. Uh, and then what what the, the lines deviate, which is we, we can have a steep uh, decline uh, which is the trajectory of ongoing lupus nephritis flares. You haven't settled lupus nephritis. You have ongoing tissue inflammation that may be even at a subclinical level, and that could take you down to loss of kidney function in your lifetime, requiring renal replacement therapies. Uh, and then what we really want is sort of that middle red line where you, you've lost renal function, but then you mitigate the slope and you extend for your, your life expectancy. And I, I just wanted to throw in, you, you know, and there are no data yet, uh, for the SGLT2 inhibitors, but we are using them in non-lupus chronic kidney disease. There's been a few little trials in the rheumatology literature, at least suggesting these are safe in lupus patients. Uh, but the idea is through a non-immunologic mechanism, although there is some question of immunologic effects yeah. of the SGLT2s, um, that the, the uh, SGLT2s will mitigate or slow the uh, slope of decline uh, of GFR. Similarly, with as the well-known uh, renin-angiotensin system inhibition and adding aldosterone to RAS inhibition with an ACE inhibitor and ARB may also help uh, mitigate the decline in, in, in GFR. So we have to think about not only the treatment of the acute disease process, which is primarily inflammatory, but the consequences of that inflammation on future uh, kidney function. We really have to start much, much that. later than we realize. Of yes, right yes. Don't they? It could be decades. Yeah. So just actually, just to finish up now, before we go to the questions, of the four of us here, who's using SGLT2 inhibitors in lupus nephritis patients? All of us. I thought so. <laughs> you do see some quite scary drops in GFR. I mean, it, yeah. it's supposed to predict outcome, but you have to slightly hold your nerve and obviously monitor them quite carefully. Uh, I must um, say, I give them with my nephrologist friend holding my hand when I'm doing it. <laughs> So should we go to some of the questions? Because there are a few good ones in the chat. Um, so we've got the key learning points here. Importance of a prompt biopsy, as we said, damage is accruing early. Steroids while waiting for the biopsy result. And there's still this emphasis on pulse IV, even though we all think we want to reduce the oral doses. 
all this controversy about how to choose the different immunosuppressive regimen, but I think we mostly agreed that we prefer to use a combination of multiple agents when we can, and then to think about those long-term goals of therapy and the other agents that maintain it. Now, one of the questions which was also in my mind that's come up in the chat is, do, does the, the ancestry of the patient e.g. East Asian or African ancestry of the patient influence these decisions. We've got data, there's been controversy about belimumab data, there was controversy about the original arms data. To anyone really, I think. I, I, it doesn't influence my decision, frankly. Yeah. I, I believe the original alms data in the post-hoc analysis, which suggested patients of African ancestry uh, didn't respond as well to cyclophosphamide uh, and maybe did better with mycophenolate was misinterpreted. Uh, and the I, I believe, and I'll defer to the rheumatologists, the idea that belumimab doesn't work well in patients with African ancestry is fraught with difficulties in I those, think in those Maria trials. would like to comment on that one. I agree. I think this this had this kind of goes back, harkens back to the you know the the initial bulimumab non-renal trials where there was a suggestion in phase three in the subgroup analysis of patients of African ancestry that perhaps the bulimumab arm did not do as well as the control arm. That was not seen in phase two. So it was this surprise in phase three, which then led to remember the embrace trial being conducted, which unfortunately was underpowered. They couldn't enroll the number that they wanted to enroll. There was a numerical benefit in favor of belimumab in the African ancestry patients, but it did not reach statistical significance. But again, that trial was underpowered. My personal viewpoint, just using this agent and also the accumulation of data, is that there we should be using it in African ancestry patients. And we don't have enough robust data to suggest that it's not beneficial in that subgroup. And then I'm just thinking back to now the Bliss LN, and please, my panelists remind me again, but in the Bliss LN trial, um, the numbers were small of patients uh, that were self-reported black. And I think that's the way that it was designated. In fact, I think that randomization was stratified by black versus non-black. Um, numbers were small. In the post hoc kind of subgroup analyses, I think the point estimate favored belimumab versus control. Yes. It did not reach statistical significance, but again, there, we have that issue of powering <clears throat> subgroups. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I just thought these terms like self-reported black or amphetamine ancestry, yeah. they're just not useful, are they? Because exactly. those are covering massively different groups of people and they're in different healthcare systems. There's just, it, there's so much in there that's more important, isn't there, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. There's more of a risk that you'd be discriminatory and saying, oh, this isn't going to do you good. Whereas we don't have the data to say that. So they sh anyone should be offered optimal therapy that's available at the time. Yeah, I agree. And then there's quite a few, there's a, a few questions here. People are asking about some of the new, obviously thinking about the newer therapies that are coming around the corner. So one, for example, is, is Benlister enough or do we, or do we actually need the mechanisms of atacicept or teletacicept actually when we're using DAF blockade? I will defer to people who've used them. <laughs> is this more of a rheumatologist's question? <laughs> so there's, Oh, yeah. go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, go on, Maria. Maria you know, you know, no, I think this is very interesting. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the question, so we know that 
So Atacacept and Teletacacept targets both BATH and April, right, which are homologous cytokines that are important for B cell differentiation survival. We think that April is, is more important in plasma cell survival, um, whereas bilimumab is just targets, of course, soluble BATH. But I think the question that you asked, Ed, is BATH enough, is bilimumab enough? Well, we have data, right, from the BLIS-LN trial that support the fact that bilimumab works <laughs> in combination with, with MF. So I think our answer is there. And the question is, are we going to get more efficacy by agents like Atacacept or Teletacacept yeah. that also target April? Are we going to get even more efficacy we don't know the answer to that yet, right? There, the there was this trial, done. wasn't there, at EULA last year, or this year, actually, So, say, that seemed to show a really impressive delta on SRI4 for non-renal lupus with right. teletasoceps that seemed very large compared to what we could see in other right. lupus trials. The problem is, is the trial was all done in Chinese patients where the background therapies might be different, the severity of lupus may be higher than in some of the global populations. There may be lots of reasons why that may not be exactly the same when you take it to a, a, a multinational study and we all, we all eagerly wait to see if that will get reproduced. And so then there's a couple of others on other therapies. Well, I think they're alluding to other therapies. So one is saying, is it okay to use rituximab in lupus nephritis when up to 65% of patients get anti-drug antibodies? I've got someone at the door. This is marvellous timing. Uh, yes, of course, it's okay to use rituximab. They do. I, I don't know that it's as high as 65%. We've used it repeatedly in patients, and they definitely do develop allergy. And then we moved on to offer tubumab, which you could no longer get. We're all waiting for obinutuzumab, because if the phase three, if Regency recapitulates nobility, which was the phase two, then we're home and dry because it's a fantastic B cell depleter and it appears to work. But we have and to. And its advantages are not just anti drug antibodies, is it? Yeah. It's, 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 it's the whole mechanism of B it's cell better. killing is, is, yeah. is superior. So it's a, exactly. And, you may never respond to a vaccine again. But apart from that slight downside, yeah. uh, it <laughs> is, it is, it looks like it's going to be a really, really excellent. Um, drug so we we wait and see but I, I i you know rituximab brad i hope will back me up on this we so many of us use it it does work the trial didn't but if you then look at the post hoc analysis of the people who actually b cell depleted it worked yeah so that's really the key and and that's why all of us are eagerly awaiting uh, the obinutuzumab uh data which as you said ed it kills, but kills in a different way. We don't need complement. It's a, it's got a much higher potency, and it, its depletion is remarkably complete very early on, and and I think that you know if you're we're talking about future therapies that I think have a lot of traction, that's one of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I've done all this. I've done done many years of researching depths of depletion, which we have a lab that does specialized assays on how well you can deplete. And my colleague in the lab says he knows when it's a binutuzumab without seeing <laughs> the information. You can just see it on the flow cytometry. Yeah. Um, there's a question about it. Do we? have a different concern about end-stage kidney disease development in patients who are receiving MMF compared with cyclophosphamide? Well, I guess the answer just depends how well it works. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know 
that we have any data to suggest that one is different than the other. Um, and of course, that's, you know, why cyclophosphamide became used, right, was because so many patients were reaching end-stage kidney disease uh, with steroids alone. I don't think we have data to suggest otherwise, uh, uh, and I think uh, you can use either one. Liz, do we have any data? Um <laughs> No, I don't think we do. I think the long-term Eurolupus suggests that actually, you know, 10 years data, they had very low rates of end-stage kidney disease. We've looked at our 20 and 30-year data, but they're very different populations. You know, 20, 30 years ago, we weren't controlling blood pressure as well, and our cyclophosphamide patients longer term do less well. Some of them will have had NIH and more recently Eurolupus. And there's a massive ascertainment bias because you see a heavily crescent, the patients who never get into a study, the heavily crescentic patients tend to get cyclophosphamide. They've got worse lupus. So if they do worse in the long term, is it anything to do with the treatment or is it just yeah. that they're going to So it's to really it's about getting to the right target. It's getting to the right, yeah. it's getting to the right target. The thing I will say um, is that, and, and Brad, I think you use oral cyclophosphine. We like cyclophosphine because of, akin to the IV bulimumab, we know the patient's getting it. And my biggest problem is the patients who just don't get their meds because they don't seem to be able to take their tablets regularly. So I, you know, that that to me is an advantage and would improve outcomes, but I don't think we've got any real proof that is actually the case. No, I we think that's a discussion for another day because unfortunately we've run out of time, but that's <laughs> a very good place to end. Um, I hope uh, you've all enjoyed this discussion and found it useful for your practice. I'd like to thank my co-hosts and the audience for attending and taking part. And we'd really appreciate it if you do the quick evaluation form, which will appear when the webinar closes. It's just a way for us to improve our webinars and for you to tell us what you liked and enjoyed and might like to see in, in, in future. And of course, the live streamed version of this discussion today is going to be available on our YouTube channel shortly after we conclude. So we hope this series of webinars on lupus nephritis has been useful. I wish you all the best in your clinical practice and goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thanks.